Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. Today, we continue the sermon series, Promises from the Upper Room. Today, pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson discuss the promise of the Advocate, or the Holy Spirit. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings us comfort of God's continuing presence. The presence of the Holy Spirit means that all of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is with us. Join us as we discuss the implications of this presence in our lives and the mystery of the Holy Spirit. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me, as always, is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Turning up again like a bad penny. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And just like our weather, it continues to... Yeah, it was uh, blustery over the weekend and rainy today as we record yeah, isn't uh, March supposed to, it's supposed to come in as a, a lion and out like a lamb. It's just, We're waiting for the lamb part. Yeah, we're still roaring here. So, Well, maybe we'll get it in time for the extravaganza coming up. That would be good to have good weather f- for that. Well, it's great to have you with us, Bruce, uh, because you were our preacher on Sunday. I was uh, looking at a very familiar passage, John 14, the end of that, where Jesus promises the Spirit mm-hmm. and also promises the peace that uh, the world can't give. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wonderful, wonderful passage to look at. So I read that on Sunday. Do you want to read that passage sure. uh, to get us started? Sure. And is this the NIV? This is the NIV. All right. Verse... Uh, So this is John 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad 
that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. It's a very perplexing way that chapter ends, where Jesus says, come now, let us leave, and then he goes on and talks for another three chapters. They don't leave until he gets those three chapters finished. Hmm. Uh, So some might say, we're looking at the promises of the other room, that's the unfulfilled promise of the shorter sermon. Jesus keeps on talking and talking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I would not say that, but some might say that. Well, the Holy Spirit is is very important to uh, Christians, and uh, we have a lot of discussion about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We do, and there's a difference in the way the Holy Spirit works in the New Testament and in our lives today versus how the Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament period, mm-hmm. where he would come upon... Um, a prophet or a judge, a leader of the country for a specific task, uh, for giving a prophecy, it's a specific prophecy, the Spirit would come. And you see that in reading through some of the prophets, the Spirit of the Lord came upon mm-hmm. Isaiah or Jeremiah. And then they deliver a prophecy where the Spirit of the Lord rests on a particular leader. You did the, a good job on Sunday explaining that. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's really a... a very different thing that goes on in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul called the Spirit the guarantee of our inheritance. Uh, how do we know that we are part of God's family, that we're heirs to the promises of God? Well, the Holy Spirit's in us. That's how we know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's, that's the source of our comfort. You know, uh, we talk about the fact that Jesus is in our hearts, and what we mean by that is the Holy Spirit comes to stay. It's the full presence of God in our hearts. So I'm never alone, and you're never alone. Um, we talk about the Spirit's presence when we gather for worship. We talk about the Spirit's presence in the sacraments, uh, both in baptism and uh, the communion. We, we emphasize that, I, and that's a living reality. But the living presence of God is in us forever. Uh, so that makes a difference. Mm. Uh, how how do you think about that, or how has that been a comfort to you, Kirk? I guess as I've I've as I've grown and matured as a Christian, I've understand the the just how much comfort that brings me, power it gives me, um, helps me, um, especially when I'm studying Scripture, to pray to God to say, I really need your help here in understanding this word. Yeah, um, the Spirit gives us understanding. And that's something that we see in Scripture. First um, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That is, um, we only are able to read Scripture rightly because of the Spirit's help. Um, and see that and experience that quite a bit when we're together as Christians, studying around in a Bible study together or in worship together, and somebody's preaching on a passage of Scripture. 
But we also see that in our, and experience that in our devotional reading, uh, just when we're all alone and sitting back in our easy chair or in some comfortable spot, and we take the time to pray and open up scriptures and try to read them. Mm-hmm. The, the Spirit helps us to apply uh, scriptures to what's going on in our lives. That's how I see and ex- experience it uh, quite a bit in my devotional reading. It helps me as a pastor, too, to sometimes make sense of how some people cannot believe and how their hearts have uh, remained hardened and unregenerate uh, because even our faith is a gift from God. Yeah, another passage in 1 Corinthians talks about this. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Mm. So it's really a gift, uh, uh, which goes uh, right along with Reformed teaching, where you know, God is large and in charge. God rules and overrules all things. So even the faith we have is a gift from God. And uh, I'm grateful for that gift that mm-hmm. uh, I've been taught and uh, nurtured in the faith by people who just trust in the Lord. And I've had that experience all through my life. I really cherish that. Yeah. I often try to encourage people when they wonder about their situation in regards to their faith. You know, some have great faith, some have little faith, but I always go back to that Philippians text that says that what God has begun in you, he's begun a good work in you, and he's going to see it through to the day of Christ Jesus. Yes. In fact, we have that echo of that in our old friend John Calvin, Mm. who said at one point, for the Spirit does not merely originate faith, but gradually increases it until, it's, until by its means he conducts us into the heavenly kingdom. That is, the Spirit is the one that keeps on um, perfecting our faith. Right, sanctification. Sanctification. That's, right. a, that's a good 50-cent word. Right. That, yeah, I always talk about sanctification is done in cooperation with the Spirit. That's right. You know, we're involved in it. Um, that's why I think our stories have so much power uh, when we're talking about witnessing, because these stories that we have are unique to us, and they're done in cooperation with the Spirit. And so they're kind of like each of us is sort of a custom made by God in that respect. Right, and you're talking about our own personal stories of how Jesus first became important to us and how we maintain our relationship with with Christ. It's all unique. Every, every one of us has a unique story uh, and a story worth telling. Mm-hmm. The Spirit brings clarity into our lives um, by continually guiding us. And our task is to remain open to that guidance and to follow where the Lord leads. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Mm. And I I don't know about you, Kirk, but I often find that I need that reminder. Um, you know, sometimes you lose sight of what's important, and the Spirit draws us back to what's really important. Mm-hmm. Or we, we become fearful, we're facing a hard challenge, and we just need a reminder, uh, an, an encouragement from the Spirit you know, that God really does love us. God really is on our side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. You had another quote from Calvin, I think. Uh, yes. This is a quote from John Calvin where he talks about how the Spirit uh, is the one that really makes the difference, the one that um, 
makes faith real. He says, the work of the Spirit then is joined to the Word of God, but a distinction is made that we may know that the external Word is of no avail by itself unless animated by the power of the Spirit. All power of action then resides in the Spirit himself. So I think Calvin here is trying to dig deeper into that uh, great Greek word, uh, parakletos. And uh, Kirk, you were giving the Latin version just a little bit ago before we started recording. Paraclete. Paraclete. And yeah. you often hear that done. That's the Latin version. The original uh, Greek uh, language of the New Testament says parakletos. Mm-hmm. And it means some the, someone that comes alongside to help. So the Spirit comes alongside to help us as we read Scripture. Mm-hmm. And the Spirit comes alongside us to help us, remind us of things that we already learned but maybe have lost sight of. Mm-hmm. And the Spirit comes to remind us or to teach us new things, to help us in that sanctification of that growing closer to Christ. Right. And in your sermon, you talked about this uh, word being translated as advocate, and sometimes it's a lawyer, someone that's come alongside to Yeah, a couple you. times a lawyer, not very often, but a couple, <laughs> couple times that way. Uh, a mediator, a helper, an intercessor. A all comforter. Those. Yeah, and so when Jesus uses that word of the Spirit, I think he has all of those senses in there. Uh, and then he adds that uh, extra bit, uh, parakletas, to help us. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. When I think about this, too, I am always thought about the the text in Acts where he says, you know, he's, he's going away, and he says, uh, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Right. And, and you will be, you know, my witnesses, you know. And as uh, John Calvin says in that uh, second quote, all power of action then resides in the Spirit. So it's power so that we'll do something and something will happen. It's a very active word. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. You also had a little archaeology in your sermon, too, and uh, you want to share some of that with us? You were talking about the various places where this Mount Zion maybe resided or is considered to be Mount Zion within Jerusalem. Is that correct? That's right. So in Hebrew, it's Har Zion, Mount Zion. And originally it meant the oldest part of Jerusalem, which is south of the Temple Mount in what's called the Ophel. That is the southeastern part of Jerusalem. So between the Central Valley and the Eastern Valley, which is the Kidron Valley, and near the water source of Jerusalem. That's the oldest part, the city of David. And we read in first or in Second Samuel chapter five, verse seven, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So at that point, it can't be the Temple Mount because the temple wasn't built yet. It's built by David's son, Solomon. Mm -hmm. Um, So the city of David is itself called Mount Zion. Then later on, uh, the temple is brought by Solomon into the city of uh, Jerusalem proper, and it goes north of there where Solomon builds the temple. And that's where you have, for instance, in Psalm 48, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of the, all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So it's moved from the southern part of the city to the northern part of the city, mm. again in that eastern hill. And then there's a change from the eastern hill to the western hill, the southwestern. So it goes from northeast to the southwest. 
because of this prophecy of Micah as it's interpreted by the early Christian church. Um, Micah said that um, from out of Zion will go forth the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, when could that possibly happen, the word of the Lord going out to all nations? They said, well, obviously that happened on the day of Pentecost. And that's when they began to not only associate the upper room with which, where the Spirit is promised to the day of Pentecost where the promise is fulfilled less mm -hmm. than two months later, mm -hmm. but they changed the, or moved the name of Mount Zion from the Temple Mount to the Western Hill between the Central Valley of Jerusalem and the Western Valley of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. So it's, it's uh, very, very confusing. Mm -hmm. Now sometimes Zion itself, not Mount Zion, but Zion is used as a substitute word for Jerusalem, and you see that in the Psalms in different places. And then later on, uh, Zionism meant mm -hmm. a return to the Holy Land, so in some sense it's a uh, not just for the city, but the whole territory of uh, Israel or the land of Israel. So it's a little confusing, Kirk. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So uh, I hope that's straightened out that well, in your mind a little bit. I hope it's straightened out in my own mind. For well, that. I, I think you did a good job there. That's great. Well, each week uh, on our Full Dig podcast, we look at the eco-essential tenants. And today you have some text describing the Trinity and inner incarnation. Right. When Eco begins talking about the two central mysteries of the faith, it talks about, well, one is the Trinity and one's the Incarnation. Mm. So well, let's look at the, just the Trinity part uh, today. And I quoted just a sentence out of that, but we want to uh, have us look at the whole context of that. So it's two paragraphs, that section. So Kirk, if you'll read the first of those two, I'll read the second of those two. The triune nature of God is the first great mystery of the Christian faith. With Christians everywhere, we worship the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is both one essence and three persons. God is infinite, eternal, immutable, impassable, ineffable. He cannot be divided against himself, nor is he becoming more than he has been, since there is no potential or becoming in him. He is the source of all goodness, all truth and all beauty, all love and all life, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. The three persons are consubstantial with one another, being both co-eternal and co-equal, such that are not three gods, nor are there three parts of God, but rather three persons within the one Godhead. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. All three persons are worthy of worship and praise. So that paragraph really is this wonderful poem of praise, mm -hmm. taking uh, precise theological language and just saying, let's be clear about who this God is. Uh, God that we worship, the one and three, the three and one, is mm -hmm. just amazing. Right. So I was going to say the same word, precise. Yes. Yeah, there's such precision in these words because what we say about God here in describing the Trinity is very, very important. It's so easy to to veer off the road, if you will, into the ditch uh, and into heresy, right? Right. You know, we have um, images that we use like uh, God is like uh, water. Water can have, be uh, liquid or solid 
or a vapor, so it's kind of like God. Uh, but uh, the precise language is, well, God is of the same substance. Uh, that's important. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not that uh, one is different from the other, but, but there's this like a sacred dance. Mm. Sometimes it's described that way, that the whole universe is in the sacred dance, mm. uh, revolving around uh, a triune God, and God itself is in this eternal relationship mm. among the three persons of the Trinity. Yeah, that's great. They did good work there. They Do you want to work. read the second paragraph? Yes. God has no need of anyone or anything beyond himself, yet... In grace, this triune God is the one creator of all things. The ongoing act of creation is further manifested in God's gracious sovereignty and providence, maintaining the existence of the world and all living creatures for the sake of his own glory. He is the Holy One, the ground of all being, whose glory is so great that for us to see him is to die. Yet he has made the creation to reflect his glory. And he has made human beings in his own image with a unique desire to know him and a capacity for relationship with him. Since our God is a consuming fire whom we in our sin cannot safely approach, he has approached us by entering into our humanity in Jesus Christ. So we are in a hurting way, but God has mercy on us, and God loves us, and God is gracious to us, and God has become one of us. God takes the first step in Jesus Christ so that we can live in a relationship with Almighty God. I wonder how the authors of this part of the eco-essential tenets began this work. I mean, that it's so daunting to try to describe the Trinity, and to do it in such a precise and, and really su- succinct way. And, of course, when you become ordained as a pastor, you're asked to do a faith statement, so mm-hmm. we, we try our best to try to succinctly talk about the faith, including the mystery of the Trinity, and it's, you know, it's a mystery. We, we can't fully explain it. We can say some things about it. We can say some things that it's not, um, but uh, the main part of the emphasis here in the essential tenets is on God's gracious act. Uh, God being uh, ineffable, somebody that we can't fully um, put our finger on and describe completely. God has taken the first step so that we can know him and have a relationship with him. It's really, really wonderful. Well, that uh, I'm glad you chose that. Really good for us to hear and a good reminder of just the well, the complexity of that mystery that we uh, proclaim to be true. Um, we have in our regular features in the Full Dig podcast a quote from C.S. Lewis, too. Yes, C.S. Lewis doesn't often talk about the Holy Spirit, but there is a section on uh, the Trinity and the Holy Spirit in C.S. Lewis's book, The Mere Christianity. So here's a quote from Mere Christianity. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this unit itself is also a person. I know this is almost inconceivable, but look at thus. You know that among human beings, when they are together in a family or a club or a trade union, 
people talk about the spirit of that family or club or trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving, which they would not have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it is not a real person. It is only rather like a person. But that is just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and the Son is a real person, is in fact the third of the three persons of God. This third person is called in technical language the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of God. So Lewis here is drawing on uh, the writing of St. Augustine who talked about uh, the Trinity in terms of uh, a lover, the beloved, and the love itself as a way of talking about uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now another feature we have on the Full Dig podcast is a quote from our Reform Heritage. And Kirk, did you find a quote from our Reform Heritage about the Holy Spirit? Well, I found something from Richard Phillips. And remember, ah, he's, right. he's a contemporary Christian pastor in the PCA. He has written um, some commentaries, and I think he's the editor of of a reform commentary series that I'm fond of. and uh, So did you find something as he's trying to talk about uh, John chapter 14? Well, he had an illustration that maybe he's used, you know, he's a preacher. So oh, okay. I, I thought it was a good illustration and one we might use in the, in the future. So I thought at least it'd be good for you and I, and I hope it it is one that um, shed some light on the idea of what a paraclete does. Okay, well, preach away then. Kirk. All right. He says, I thought of the idea of a paraclete recently as one of our younger daughters began to ride her bicycle without the training wheels. She was able to take this important step in life only with a good deal of help. The helper was her mother, who acted out both senses of the word paraclete. First, she raced to our daughter's side as one called to answer the need. Once there, she guided the handlebars, balanced the bike as it was uh, going, and called out encouragement that our daughter needed to ride on her own without the training wheels. With the help of her mother as paraclete, our daughter was able to accomplish what she otherwise lacked the ability to do on her own. In a like manner, the Holy Spirit provides the enabling help for Christians to achieve their potential as born-again followers of Jesus. Wow. And all along that bike ride, that little girl knew that her mom, her helper, her paraclete, was somebody that loved her and wanted to encourage her, wanted her to do well. Well, and I don't know about your experience. Um, I've... um, I did this with my daughter, and um, you know, you have your hand on the on the. I I didn't. I at times I might have it on the handlebar at first, you know, but after a while, you have kind of your hand on the seat. Yes. And then eventually, you let go of it, and because you can't run that fast. But she still thinks that the paraclete is there. Right. She thinks you're still hanging on, but she's off doing her own. And, you know, eventually she'll turn around and see that she's been doing it on her own all the time. So I guess that's kind of the idea that 
if you want to talk about it a little further, is that the, Jesus thought it was good that he should go is because he's going to send another a helper. And um, even though we won't have Jesus actually holding the steering wheel or the seat, um, we still sense his presence that way. We do sense his presence. And in, in that illustration, the mother wanted the child to be able to ride the bike. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's talking about the, the growth that uh, a parent wants for his or her child. And God wants us to grow. The Holy Spirit wants us to, to grow. There's a story about uh, Mr. Rogers where somebody comes up to Mr. Rogers and uh, because he's not only a, a TV personality who had a children's show for many years, but somebody that was an ordained Presbyterian minister. So somebody asked Mr. Rogers one day, Mr. Rogers, don't you think the greatest theological statement is God is love? And he said, that's a great theological statement for a (laughs) three-year-old. In other words, that's good. Start there, but don't stop there. Right. Keep keep on growing in the faith. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, how should we pray today, Bruce? Well, uh, we're getting close to Holy Week and Palm Sunday and Easter Good Friday. Mm. So I think it's uh, maybe we can close in prayer by asking God to keep us mindful of all Jesus has done for us. Mm. Would you pray for us? I'd love to. Gracious God, we thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit has come into our lives to stay. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives to teach us and to remind us. And Lord, we pray as we move closer to Holy Week, that you would continue to remind us about how great is your love that you sent your one and only Son for us. Lord, in all that Jesus did for our sakes, all he endured, Lord, make us ever grateful and help us as we continue this journey to Zion and to the cross and to the empty tomb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk. Mm-hmm.